0: I can't wait to introduce you to Dr. Susie Cater but before I do I'd like to invite you to set this intention with me for this episode. I welcome uncertainty with grace and ease. This episode is all about how to handle perfectionism by not doing everything by yourself. Let's go meet Dr. Susie Cater. Welcome to the Handle Everything podcast where people who have a lot on their plate come to learn how to open doors to opportunities by handling it all in a healthy way. I'm your host, Tara Bradford, a former ICU nurse turned executive coach. I'm here with Dr. Susie Cater, a visionary expert in conversion copywriting and messaging. Susie helps women entrepreneurs use the power of words to get noticed, adored, and fantastically paid for the work they most love doing without holding back or censoring themselves. When she's not crafting her career changing website copy and email sequences for her high profile clients, you can find Susie chasing after her baby daughter, visiting family, and her alma mater, Oxford in the UK, or binge watching great British bake off episodes. <laughs> Susie has been published in numerous academic reviews worked as a teaching fellow and prize-winning researcher at NYU, and now resides just outside of New York City. You can visit her website to find out more about her work at com. Welcome to
1: the show, Susie. Thank you so much for having me, Tara. It's so great to be here.
0: And I start off every episode with one question. How full is your plate? I know your bio gave us a clue as to how full it might <laughs> be. Could you let us know all of the responsibilities you're currently juggling?
1: Yeah, so there's the baby daughter who is mentioned in the bio. So right now as we're recording the podcast, she is nine and a half months old, learning to crawl, getting used to daycare, starting to babble a little bit and starting to eat more and more food she is like (laughs) a bottomless pit oh my god I don't know where the food is going (laughs) so I I work four days a week in my business and then I spend one extra day Fridays looking after her and just to have some mummy daughter bonding time and then running my business in between
0: amazing and how do you handle everything do you do
1: it all by yourself so definitely having baby Abigail has forced me to kind of step it up a lot in my business and get more support, both in my business and at home, actually. And I think the first thing we did was hire a regular cleaner to come and help us because there just came to a point where I was like, this is not a good use of my time anymore. Mm-hmm. And you just realize how precious your time is when it comes to like, I could be doing you know, profit generating activities in my business. I could be spending time with my daughter or I could be cleaning the sink. What am I gonna do? So (laughs) I've learned to outsource. So cleaning help, we've been doing a lot more kind of just help around the house with like groceries, organizing stuff, getting laundry done for us. And then I've also hired a VA as of the start of this year. And that's just been amazing to have that extra support in my business.
0: And for everyone listening who's not a business owner and maybe doesn't know what VA stands for, it's a virtual assistant. It sounds like it's really helping you feel less overwhelmed. I mean, I know some people who are like breastfeeding while they're recording videos. (laughs) I mean, not on video, but you know, it's from the (laughs) neck up. And yes, I have to admit every once in a while, I'll do a YouTube video or something with pajama pants on or yoga pants on and like a nice top. Yeah. But <laughs> I can't imagine trying to keep a baby from crying at the same time that I'm trying to do that and juggling all of that. It sounds really overwhelming. So good for you for recognizing yeah. that you can have all of your priorities at the same time without and think, putting all of your time yeah. into them.
1: Because you mentioned in my intro how I live just outside New York now. And that was a decision that came about when we were pregnant. We did the crazy thing that everyone says never to do. And we moved apartments like eight weeks after our daughter was born. That was just something that really needed to happen in terms of like the space, the freedom, the support. We're also closer to my mother-in-law. So she looks after Abby one day a week. And And now I have a beautiful home office that I get to do my work in and just really setting myself up so that I wasn't working in coffee shops anymore or just working on my laptop and our kitchen table or things like that. having an office that was really just a corner of the apartment, I knew with the baby, I needed a dedicated space and help kind of keeping that professionalism going.
0: That's amazing. And so with all of this help, do you ever feel overwhelmed or stressed?
1: Of course, of course. (laughs) And I think one of the things with having a child, obviously, is everything is so unpredictable. And, you know, it's tough because like I had a branding photo shoot the other day. And of course, The night before, she didn't sleep well and started crying for like an hour and a half. Things like that happen all the time where it's just not predictable. So I've tried to develop my business now so that it's much more flexible and I do have a little bit of recovery time or flexibility built in in case something goes wrong with the baby.
0: Right. So you're preparing for things and expecting them to happen and not expecting everything to be smooth sailing all the time.
1: Exactly, because it never will be.
0: Right. So how do you know when you're stressed out? I can't imagine going to a photo shoot on almost no sleep.
1: Yeah, I think from that, I now have a lot of faith in my own resilience. There was one day I remember I woke up and I had sales calls and I had a client call and Abby had kept me up. This was before we sleep trained her, which we did, thank goodness. But it was before she was sleep trained and I'd had like three hours sleep. I just remember telling myself, you know, you've done more on less and remembering my teaching days when sometimes I didn't get much sleep and just faith that, you know, I can do this. And then I can go take a nap. (laughs) You only have to show up for (laughs) short, sustained bursts. But to speak to your question of how do I know when I'm stressed out or overwhelmed, I think it depends on the kind of stress. So one is kind of overwhelm when there's just too much going on. And then I noticed that my tendency, and it's a tendency that I've had to try and push back against because it's not good for my health. My tendency is to be like, okay, I'm going to get everything done. I'm just going to like hustle and push myself and stay up late and work on this after the baby goes to bed or get up early or whatever, and just really push myself. And that's something I've noticed I do, and it's not productive, and I don't. Create at my best when I'm functioning like that. And it's just a recipe for burnout. So I really try to scale back when I notice myself doing that and give myself some time just to relax, no matter how overwhelming it seems. That's hard to do. I'm not going to pretend it isn't, but I really try. <laughs> And then the other kind of stress is probably kind of scarcity thinking, like, I don't have enough of this. Maybe I've spent a lot of time on client work and I haven't had enough time to do marketing. And I'm like, oh, no, I haven't got enough sales calls coming in. And I notice then that I have kind of a lot of negative self-talk going around in my head. And all those things that we say to ourselves, like, maybe you'll never get another sales call ever again, things like that, that's just patently ridiculous. And the more I go through periods like that, the more I'm becoming better at being like, no, this has happened before. And it's always turned out fine. Just be patient. Don't listen to those negative voices. Just try and tune them out as best I can.
0: Those are great points. I love that you separated into two different categories of stress because both of those are very stressful. Exactly, exactly.
1: <laughs> and they usually and, follow each other. It's like, right? oh, periods of I have too many calls and too much work. And then it dies down, oh, no, I don't have enough work. <laughs> that kind of up and down cycle, I've realized, is very typical when you're self-employed and For any kind of business, there'll be fat months, there'll be leaner months. It's completely normal and just try and ride the waves. Right. And pay
0: attention to sales cycles so that you can prepare for it the following year if it's the same audience and they're going through the same things.
1: Exactly. Like, I remember my first year of business, the time around Christmas was a very quiet time, sort of just after Christmas, because everybody's feeling, you know, like, oh, I spent too much at Christmas. I ate too much. I'm just going to cut back on everything. And so I remembered that and kind of built that into my schedule this year and just took that time as vacation time with my daughter. (laughs) Because if nobody's hiring, Right after Christmas, like why bust my butt trying to convince him that we right. should be doing that
0: and ruin your holiday? I know I had this exactly. a similar experience over the summer. It was like mm-hmm. all of my clients went to the Hamptons mm-hmm. for two months, and I was like, "Well, why am I trying to hustle and work all summer and miss my two months
1: off?" Exactly. <laughs> Once you understand that, you get a lot better at taking the vacation and about not feeling bad for doing that. Right.
0: And the following year, I did not have the same problem that summer. (laughs) I learned from that. And so you mentioned a few other examples of times when you were under a lot of pressure, like during school, moving while you have a new baby. Could you Mm -hmm. tell us about a time when you were under a lot of pressure and you turned it around into an opportunity?
1: Yeah, so it was probably the end of 2018, start of 2019. So I was pregnant with my daughter and my business was still relatively new. I was still in the first year of my business. And I was also juggling some health issues with the pregnancy, and it was just a time of tremendous uncertainty. And, you know, being a self employed person in the first year of my business, I just didn't know how I was going to keep the business going and take the maternity leave that I wanted to take. And also I wasn't sure if we were going to stay in the city or not and you know what we should do about our living situation. And it was a time when it really felt very overwhelming. And I decided to take a leap of faith basically. And what I did was I got really specific with the kinds of people who I most loved working with and who I knew could afford to pay high rates for the services I provide. And I dramatically increased my prices. And I also cut all my ties with my other clients who weren't in the kind of niche that I wanted to focus on. And I just got very specific in creating content that appealed to the kind of people that I wanted to be working with. And it was a super scary time. But within a month, I suddenly got all these sales calls flooding in. I got completely booked out in my business. I got a huge number of new clients and I was able to hit five figure months in my business thanks to doing those things. And I actually bought in enough money with those services and those new prices, not only to make the five figure months, but also to fund a really comfortable maternity leave. That was a very scary time, but I took a risk and I kind of (laughs) leapt. And the net appeared, as they say. Congratulations.
0: I know that took a lot of work. I've totally been there before where I wanted to help everyone solve every Mm -hmm. problem. And a similar situation where the second I got really specific and niche down, which I think a lot of people are afraid of. Yeah, everything turned around and it was amazing and scary. And I didn't know that that was going to be the outcome at the time. And it sounds like you didn't either. You never (laughs) know. That's really awesome to hear. And I love that you were able to fund your maternity leave and that you share that because I know so many people that I've coached have Mm -hmm. been afraid of not having health insurance. Being self-employed, health insurance is a little bit different You don't have an employer funding that. You don't have someone else paying for part of your health insurance every month. And Mm -hmm. so being able to do that on top of everything else that you're doing, especially being from the UK where you had health insurance.
1: I know. Well, luckily, I mean, I'm very fortunate in that my husband does have one of those steady jobs with health insurance. So I was able to get on his for my pregnancy and everything. So that was huge having that back up there. But then everything else, you know, because his salary wasn't enough for the two of us and a baby and I had to make it Especially in New York. Work. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Because you were
0: in the city right before I when was Abby was city. born. I was
1: Yeah, she was born in Manhattan and her first home was in Brooklyn. So she definitely (laughs) has all the New York cool credentials that I do not have. So, yeah, I tell you what, because we bought a co op just outside of the city. And that was an intense time too, because your finances are just completely scrutinized throughout that process. And we were talking to banks, we were talking to co op boards, everything had to be perfect. So, I was taking this risk in my business at a moment when people kept saying, send me your bank statements, send me your bank statements. And I really didn't want to send them my bank statements. (laughs) But yes, I knew I had to show up and really make it work. And that doesn't always happen by playing it safe.
0: Absolutely. And during this time, even though you didn't want to send the bank statements, what are some things that you did to relieve some of that stress so that you could move forward confidently and get your new home?
1: I think because it was in the early stages of my business, I felt like I had a huge amount to prove still. And that's a difficult point to be in because you feel like you haven't got there yet and you feel like you can get there. You just need to have someone or yourself to have faith in you. You need to have the faith that you can get there. And that's where I really had to kind of show up for myself and not think, oh, what will the co-op board think of the fact that I left this career in academia for this, you know, new business and just say, no, this is going to work out. Because if you don't have the faith in yourself, the other people aren't going to have it for you, realistically. Like you have to be your own advocate.
0: Right. And you did work in academia before, so before you were an entrepreneur, you Mm -hmm. were an award-winning researcher at NYU and Oxford and the Sorbonne, and And you explored how authors from backgrounds where it wasn't usual or encouraged to write, how they succeeded in finding their voices and creating groundbreaking pieces of writing that changed lives, and we hear the terms be yourself and find your voice and be authentic, thrown around quite a bit. But nobody's really saying how to do that. They're just saying to do it. And you're supposed to just know. So how Mm. did you see these writers finding their voices? Did they all do it in the same way or did they have something different? Did you notice any
1: patterns? It's so interesting. Such a great question. And I think it's to do with my own background coming from a very rural, impoverished area of the UK, I was always drawn to writers who were maybe from working class backgrounds, from rural France, who often felt very inadequate compared to, you know, the slick Parisian writers. And then my thesis was on writers from the former French empire. So those were cultures where they didn't have like a national literature that they were proud of, or that anybody had recognized as worthy because their countries had been, you know, plantation colonies and writing hadn't been taught. How do you come to that? And how do you start expressing yourself in a medium that traditionally no one's ever encouraged you to express yourself in? And I also worked a lot on women's writing too. And basically, what I saw is there is no one way but you shouldn't feel as if your voice has to be a certain way to express your experiences. And I saw writers talk about their experiences in super simple, very like flat language, very uncomplicated, very direct, in hugely powerful ways. And then I saw writers kind of use language in much more exuberant ways, react against the kind of super clear, maybe masculine style that you might describe as traditional novels being written in, just experimenting with it in a way that reflected their voice And I think that people who are writing to promote themselves, to market their businesses, I think that's something to bear in mind, that you don't have to fit into a certain box. You don't have to be professional or corporate. You don't have to kind of censor yourself and hold back. You might not be everybody's cup of tea. You never will be everybody's cup of tea. But if you're yourself, you will cultivate loyalty and a lot of connection, very powerful connection with the people who are best suited to work with you and who are really drawn to you.
0: That's so true. And not being everyone's cup of tea is actually pretty lucrative if you're running a business. (laughs)
1: Exactly, exactly.
0: And I know in academia, It can create a lot of imposter syndrome or perfectionism Mm -hmm. or this kind of achiever archetype because you're trying to get tenure and you're trying to get your PhD and you're climbing this ladder. So how did perfectionism show up in your career during this time that you're doing all this research?
1: Yeah, it was tough, I'm not gonna lie. It was really when I started writing my dissertation, but also anything you publish in academia, it has to go through a very rigorous peer review process. So you'll send in your article and then they'll have at least two people critique it and send you suggestions for improving it and then you'll do it again and then they'll critique it some more and then you'll finally get it approved and a year or two down the line it'll appear in an academic journal but my dissertation was really hard because one chapter can take you know several months to write and that's all you're doing for maybe four months researching writing this chapter And then I remember my advisor with my first draft of my first dissertation chapter saying, yeah, this gets good on like page 42. I think you should rework the whole chapter (laughs) starting from what you start saying on page 42. So it's these months of work just get tossed. So absolutely, it has an effect on you. And I think that that ended up kind of forcing me to go on my own journey when I started my business to have confidence in my own voice and my own writing again, and not to think that, you know, what I wanted to say was only worth sharing if I'd spent four months writing it and then editing it to adhere to this standard of perfectionism. Wow. And... It's interesting that you had
0: this amazing career in academia, and you left a job that some people might say you're crazy to be leaving, or other people would dream of having that job. And you actually had an unexpected turn of events after a health scare. Yeah. Was that the turning point in your 12-year-long career where you decided to walk away from it all?
1: Yeah, I think basically the stereotype is, you know, this idea that you get long holidays, you get to travel, you get to teach, like you just get to read. It's this beautiful thing. The reality, as realities often are, is very different. And due to all sorts of different factors to do with funding and everything, universities, you know, they're not necessarily investing in faculty and in tenure track faculty and The faculty that are there are often very overburdened, overstretched, and I got a taste of that working as a teaching fellow after I did my PhD, where just the administrative burden, the amount I was expected to teach and research... I was working very late into the night and working at weekends, getting up early to do work. And I was being paid very, very little for it. And that combined with the stress of finishing my dissertation and kind of, I'd spent a lot of time at my computer. I had repetitive strain injury. I just knew that I was pushing my body to breaking points and I wasn't doing any of the things I most loved anymore. And I wasn't behaving to other people, like in a way that I recognized myself in. Like I was becoming that professor who didn't reply to their students' emails or whatever, who was preparing for my lessons last minute. Like I wasn't able to do my work the way I wanted to because I was so rushed and overburdened. And that was a real wake-up call. And when I started my business, that became something that I carried with me. Like this has to be better than what I was doing in academia. And I think it's kept me from burning out in my business because a lot of people start their businesses and burn out at some point soon after. And I've never let that happen to myself because I remember how bad it got in my academic career.
0: Yeah, that makes so much sense. I'm sorry that that happened. And I think in a lot of careers, I know for me, I had that moment too, where I looked in the mirror and I thought I didn't recognize myself. Yeah. And I'm not as compassionate as I used to be. And I think I'm a really nice person and I don't know why I'm not as nice as I used to be. Yeah. Even though people weren't telling me I was mean, but I thought I was mean. And I've talked to other people who have their PhDs and they said after their dissertation they collapsed and they slept for like two weeks.
1: Yeah I got really sick after finishing my dissertation because I pushed myself so hard and then I went right into teaching and it was just way too much and it's interesting what you said that you had the same moment where you didn't recognize yourself because I think when people demand too much of us we try to do everything and satisfy them and please them but it does actually affect the way that we start behaving to others because you can't keep giving. There's only so much energy you can have and it does affect your compassion and the way you're showing up for others as well as for yourself.
0: Right, and it goes back to your initial description of stress in your life. How do you know when you're stressed and it's other people increasing the demands that they have on you or adding more things to your plate and thinking, I can just do it all. And I think that's what I was doing. Back then, and maybe what you were doing too, we were just like, we can do it all and we have to, and there's a deadline or someone's life depends on it. Mm -hmm. So I don't have a choice. I can't say no.
1: Exactly. Yeah. It's a slippery slope to be on. and I sometimes think that women especially struggle with this because we're supposed to be nurturing and we're kind of conditioned to say yes and to help. And it can really have a negative impact in the way that we look after ourselves. Absolutely.
0: And so I want to go back to your story and talk about your transition from academia to entrepreneurship. You said you wanted to make sure that you never experienced burnout in what you were doing now so Mm -hmm. that you could live the life that you really wanted to live and do the work that lights you up. And you had to find your own voice as well as you made that transition Did the stories of the writers that you were researching help you find your own voice?
1: That's an interesting question. I think one thing that my research into those writers did was it gave me some really powerful perspective. And I still find that today, just reading stories of other people, of other entrepreneurs, of celebrities, you know, it could be an interview with Beyonce or something, just everyone's journey has these ups and downs and they're never finished either like with authors sometimes there's this idea that you publish your first novel and it's a huge success huge hit wins prizes and there were authors I researched who were like that but then what right like what about the next book and what about the career and how do you have longevity and what do you keep writing about and kind of taking a big picture view. And this is something I really struggle with because I find it very hard to have sort of a vision for my business that goes beyond like two or three years. But just thinking this doesn't all have to be done in the next six months. And maybe when I hit this goal that I'm really working towards now, I'm immediately going to start thinking about the next goal and just kind of recognize that it's a continuous journey. You're never just getting to one place and resting on your laurels, I think.
0: Absolutely agree with everything you're saying.
1: (laughs) And now
0: you help people write conversion copy, which means that they have to put themselves out there on their websites. They actually have to hit publish on their website and put it out into the world (laughs) with their voice and their words and their photos and their message. And a lot of people get stuck right before they hit publish on their website or they've published it and they keep editing Mm -hmm. their website, thinking that it's the website that's going to bring them clients. And so could you tell our listeners a little bit about the process of getting your writing out there on your website and what that actually does for your business and how it helps and what the expectation should be? Sorry, that was like five questions.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I will do my best. It's interesting what you think. So in terms of the like Continuous editing, usually when that's going on, it's because there's a deeper problem that has to do with the messaging. And this is why actually my process is different from a lot of other conversion copywriters because I work with my clients on the messaging first and on their story, their journey, on what they really want to share and like what their vision is for their business, how they've been courageous in their journey, how they want that to shine through in their messaging. Because usually there've been points where people have been very courageous and often they will see that as a moment of failure or a moment of struggle, that I help them kind of reframe that into a moment where they were courageous and brave. Then once they've kind of done that mental reframe, got clear on what it is they really want to communicate and convey, then we can start doing the copy. But if you're just, you know, trying to make the words sound good, that's not going to get you (laughs) that far. And another thing also I find is that people often aim too low in terms of who they're speaking to. And I think this is to do with imposter syndrome. Like people don't want to address People who they perceive to be very high achieving because they feel maybe inadequate next to them or like, how can I help those people? But those people are often the easiest to work with because it's a matter of, you know, finding people, if you're a service provider, who are far enough along in their journey and they have the credentials and the social proof and the offer that's selling or whatever it is that you help them with where you can just come in and help them with what you do. And that tweak is gonna create massive changes for them and massive improvements for them. But if you work with somebody and everything's a mess and they need to work you know, on everything and they need help with everything, then the work you do is just going to be like the tip of the iceberg and it's not going to create those massive changes and improvements that you want your clients to see because they've just got too much else that they want help with. So that's kind of my tip, like get clear on your messaging, reframe your story so you... Start examining the points where you see yourself as having failed or struggled or not being good enough and start thinking of those points as moments where you showed courage and perseverance and then be really clear on who you want to talk to and make sure that you're not selling yourself short by pitching yourself too low. So I hope those are some good tips. Yeah,
0: that's a great tip. And even for our listeners who maybe have never posted something on social media before, or you cringe every time you post something, or you're scrolling through comparing yourself to everyone else, just remember that if you set the intention to be courageous or brave, as Susie said, before you sit down to write that post, even if it's a couple of sentences, it's going to come across differently than if you set the intention to be worried about what everyone's going to think or is this good enough or is this perfect enough to post? Because when you're vulnerable and brave, that's when you really connect with people and it stands out.
1: Exactly. I often find, you know, that some of the messaging that converts the best, it's not the messaging where you set out to, you know, convert or to book a sales call. Maybe it's something that you write just because you feel inspired to share it, or it's a story that you think is funny and then you can relate it to your business in some way. It doesn't have to look a certain way. It just has to kind of pour out of you and come from you. Definitely don't be afraid to share social proof. And if you feel embarrassed about highlighting, you know, great things about yourself, Take screenshots of messages that people send you saying how great you are. Keep the emails that people say telling you how much they love your newsletters or they love your content or how the work that you did for them is really great. Like Keep all that stuff. So one, you can look at it to remind yourself that people do think that you're great and that you are great. And then two, to share it as well and post it on social media and You don't have to do it in every post, but consistently talk about the work you do with clients and just, you know, position yourself as someone who has clients, who is an expert, who does help people, who people do enjoy working with. And that really makes a difference in terms of getting people to trust you.
0: Right. And to believe in yourself too, when you read that over and over again, and you're like, wait, people do think I'm brilliant. People do think I'm doing a great job.
1: Exactly. Exactly. I have a folder in my inbox where I keep all the replies that people send me to my newsletters saying how much they love them just so I can go back and look and be like, yes, people do enjoy hearing from me.
0: I do that too. And we started the interview talking about being a new mom. And so just to continue with our theme of perfectionism, I know you gave a lot of great tips at the beginning. What message do you have for new moms, if you could summarize it into a couple of sentences, who also want to be successful working moms as it relates to perfectionism?
1: So one message, this comes from my mum, and she actually said this to me when I was choosing my wedding dress and I was second-guessing the dress that we just bought. She said, Susie, you made the best decision you could with the information you had at the time. And that's something <laughs> that I say to myself when I'm second-guessing or going into a spiral of self-doubt. So you made the best decision you could with the information you had at the time. And then also something I say to myself is just, you're doing your best because it might not be perfect but you're doing what you can and that's all anyone can expect of you just show up do your best try hard take care of yourself as well and something i think too is i try to model for my daughter even though she's 9 months old and you know doesn't really take anything in certain behaviors like there was one time at breakfast i was in a rush to get her ready get myself ready and i'd fed her breakfast and she wanted to come out of her high chair, but I just needed to finish my breakfast first. And it would take me one and a half minutes to finish my breakfast. And she's like yelling and trying to get out and I just said to her Abby it's important that your mum gets to eat too I want you to know when you have kids that you deserve to eat as well as them (laughs) like so I'm just gonna take this minute to eat my breakfast before I take you out the high chair and give you my full attention again (laughs) because so often we do self-sacrifice because we're like oh it's best for them but actually what are we showing them are we showing them that when you grow up you should always be putting your child's needs first and not eating and not taking care of yourself no we don't want to show them that that's how grown-up women should behave and that they should behave in the future so I try to think about that and that I'm modeling how I want her to feel that she deserves to be treated in the future
0: I love that so much and I think that's the perfect place to wind down the interview with a few rapid fire questions so I just want you to answer them with the first thing that pops into your mind yes Okay. What does it mean to feel successful
1: to you? Easy and abundant.
0: What is something you've accomplished that you're most proud of?
1: Hitting five figures in income the month before my daughter was born and the month that I went back to work after my maternity leave.
0: What are you most looking forward to this year?
1: My daughter learning to talk.
0: What's going to keep you up at night after this interview?
1: (laughs) Hopefully not my daughter. (laughs)
0: What's your favorite book or resource?
1: I really loved You Are a Badass at Making Money by Jen Sincero. I thought it was fantastic. And so funny.
0: Oh, it is. She's hilarious. What's the best way our listeners can get in contact with you?
1: You can find me on Instagram as Suzy Cater, or you can hop over to my website at com, And that's S-U-Z-Y-C-A-T-E-R. It's hard to spell, I know. Amazing.
0: Well, thank you so much for being on the show. It was so amazing to talk to you and to get to share your story with my listeners. Thank you so
1: much for having me, Tara. It's been a pleasure.
0: I hope you enjoyed that episode if you want to let me know what you thought or if you have any ideas for what you'd like to learn about on this podcast DM me on Instagram at Tara ray Bradford and if you want to check out the links and everything from this show go on over to handle everything.com. thank you all so much for listening in I super appreciate you be sure you hit subscribe if you haven't already and Leave us a review if you're on Apple Podcasts so that more high achievers like you can find the show. Thank you again to Dr. Susie Cater for being on the show and thank you to everyone listening in. You're amazing and I'm so proud of you for being able to manage all the things on your plate. From me and the podcast team, make today the best day. And by the way, if you haven't listened to episode number nine yet, It's an episode from Dr. Jolene Caro about how to care about others while also caring for yourself. I think you'd really like it because so many other people have been downloading it this month. It's my most downloaded episode right now. Check it out at handleeverything.com. Hey, in case I haven't said thank you enough yet, thanks for listening to the Handle Everything podcast at handleeverything.com.